It's an absolute joy to be with you this morning. We've had a most wonderful week here with um, an, a conversation we've had called Urban Encounter, Church Planting in a Sophisticated Culture. We had it in the cafe, and uh, it was just the most delightful time. I want to commend you, Forest Town. Uh, I always have to say Forest Town slowly because my Californian default is Forest Lawn Church. And Forest Lawn in America is a cemetery. <laughs> so, so I just got to always think for a moment, just Forest Town, Forest Town, not Forest Lawn Church. Unless, of course, you've got a Lazarus anointing and you can raise people from the dead. It really is not a great place to plant a church. But uh, I enjoy... Uh, if I go into a church and God has a commendation for that church, I always enjoy sharing it. So I want to commend you this morning. Is the sound okay? Can you hear me? Yes. Sure. You can cut me right down. I have a very loud voice. And, uh, but I want to commend you, Forest Town Church, because I feel the smile of God is on you for a number of reasons. I think uh, God really loves your bravery. The day in which we live is a spiritual revolution that historians will write about as profound and as dramatic as some of those we've seen, those of us who've been around a while. Books will be written about this time. That's why there's such a profound shaking happening in the world today. Because God is shaking the tree to make sure that there is seed for the new day, a blueprint, a pattern of doing church for the new hour. But it really requires some pretty brave people to be part of that particular journey. And that doesn't mean to say that those who don't go along that way are any less um, uh, valuable to Jesus or to the kingdom. But I do think as every move of God in our great 2,000-year history has required a group of people who will hear the Spirit of God and obey even if it costs something. I was listening to Bill Johnson in Dubai, and he was saying that when they started moving in the supernatural and praying for the sick, and God did some incredible things. He lost half of his church. Now that always sounds pretty dramatic anyway, but when you had 2,000 people and you lose 1,000, how many of you know that's not really a cool thing to do? You, you, you get no popularity prizes for that. And I loved his humility, and I sat there thinking, 1,000 people, that is a fair size. And I wonder what stories went out there about him. I wonder what the internet, Facebook, Twitter, and all the grumpies, what they wrote about him. Now, there's hardly a day that he couldn't be ministering somewhere in the world, but it had to cost something first. And I really want to commend you. It's a brave time to do church. It's a brave time to do church in the United Kingdom as it is in the first world around the world. And I really feel the Father smiles upon you. Keep a heart of bravery even if sometimes the pain is exaggerated and the pain is dramatic. It's worth it. And if it's worth for no other reason than what the church we give to our children. I am an absolute lover of local church. I've been saved 30 years now. I've, had a, um, I've been privy to much in that time. I'm trying to handpick stories so that I don't just go on a, on a journey. But the thing that I've seen God over 30 years is God is committed to the local church. God is committed to good government in the local church. God's not committed to mavericks who just do their own thing. God's not committed 
to those who destroy the local church, no matter how good they declare their intent to be, God is committed to the humility, the vulnerability, the joy of this holy sanctity called the local church, His beautiful bride, whom we will one day present to Him. One of the great joys of my life was to give my daughter away in marriage four years ago. She was 18 years old. Uh, We felt it was a little early, but it was right under God, so we didn't debate that. And uh, she got engaged at 16. A week later, she turned 17. Meryl will finish the story every time. But it was right under God. And I remember the most profound moment of the wedding for me was this. We got out the car. It was an outside wedding. There was a pathway that kind of did a 45-degree angle. And uh, as we approached the corner in the little pathway where the red runner started, she said to me, Dad, I have something for you. She turned and she said, can I have the last dance with you? And it was Josh Groban's song, You Raise Me Up. And her and I had our last dance. That was sentimentally profound for me. Tears. Someone said of our wedding that it was probably the one where more men cried than women. (laughs) It was sentimentally rich. Great in imagery. Great in illustration. But that was not the most profound moment. The speeches were not the most profound moment. And they were extraordinary. The most profound moment was when we got to the front... And Rory, my wonderful friend, did the wedding, and um, I hugged her, kissed her, held her, and then I turned to her now husband, Mark, who's six foot four, got this spiky red hair, and it was like a moment where I realized that I was actually giving my authority away. From that moment in time, my daughter was no longer under my authority, and so powerful was that impact that I came home, told my other daughter, who's in the second row, and I said, you must know this, Miss D, that if I don't believe the man you're going to marry is the right man, I will not give you away. Because it's too profound a moment. Translating that into Jesus and His bride, it's too profound a moment for people to play with government and authority. It's too profound a moment. And church history is strewn with people who believe they can take the bride for themselves. And it always ends up in damage. And it was tough for me to say to Miss D, I will not walk you down the aisle. I will not let there be a transfer of authority from me to that man if I don't believe it's right. And so I commend you, Forest Town, for your bravery in the face of some strategic decisions and the change that lies ahead for all of us. Numero dos. Number two commend you for your sacrifice. I just stood in here this morning incredibly proud of you. It's cost you big time to have this community, to have this community life, to have this facility, to have this voice and impact that you do. It's cost every one of you something. I was just thinking of driving here from Ant's place where we're staying in the dungeon, cellar, cellar, Silly me, I was going to say the dungeon. You know. <laughs> Imagine putting your guests in the dungeon. That would never happen. In the cellar. And uh, just driving here, and we stopped for our Starbucks, of course. I mean, there's tradition that you have to uphold. And, uh, but I, I just was aware of the distance that it was for you. Now, in LA, it's different. We have people who drive an hour either way. That's not a big deal. 
And that's on freeways. So to take all these little side roads that were designed in hell, <laughs> I got my rental car and got lost every day. It's like a gift. It's like, a, it's like how to be a loser, you know? <laughs> I, I, got, I got the anointing from the first day. I got it. Dropped Dana off at Oxford. And uh, all that we had to do is take the A40. So we did. And we ended up in Cheltenham. <laughs> uh, I mean, what's 40 minutes in the wrong direction? Nothing really. Meryl and I needed some bonding time. I mean, we could use the time. I mean, how complicated can that be? Is it my fault that the signs don't have east and west? Anyway, the roads weren't designed in hell. Just next door. Sacrifice, well done. Commendation from the Father. You're a sacrificial people and enjoy the journey of increased sacrifice. We never stop sacrificing. It's not something, well, I've done that. Born, you know, bought the t-shirt, done the whole thing. Sacrifice is part of our journey. This pop theology that come to Jesus and you'll only ever get blessed really is jargon from self-help books. It's not from the scripture. The scripture requires us to lay our lives down. The scripture requires us to die daily. And um, it's an incredible joy because God then does bless us and he blesses us exceedingly abundantly, but it requires us to bend our knee, to lay our lives down and to see what he does with a sacrificial life. Number three, the commendation for your generosity. I want to encourage you that the Father has seen your acts of generous kindness in giving of yourselves, giving of your finances and of your time. But my friends, the days which lie ahead will require more of that. Your guest rooms will be shattered or the room that's a study or the the futon and the lounge or something is going to have the broken and the bruised there. They will need the sanity and safety of a family just like yours. And uh, all of the sacrifice that you have made and the generosity that you've extended will be to touch those lives that will be your eternal treasure. When you get to heaven and God opens the cabinet of rewards, there will be trophies of grace with your name on it. Because you loved someone back into a relationship with Jesus. And all of these acts of generous kindness that you've given are all preparatory for the greater acts of generosity that God has ahead for you. Even in times of famine, please don't stop giving. I've been tested. Let me be honest with you. Our church went through some difficult times because of a decision we made. We planted two churches and uh, we've made a decision to sell the land and move, and that was not met with a lot of enthusiasm. So our income went down, plus the economic hard times. And so there were months I didn't get a salary. And God just said to me, do you believe in tithing? I said, yes, so I do. He said, well, tithe. I said, well, I'm not earning anything. He said, tithe on what you should be earning. So we did. My, my daughter's in her third year of college. She hasn't had a scholarship or a bursary. But God has provided for private school education, and I haven't earned a salary always. Tell me how that works. Because he's a wonderful God. Don't in times of famine let your hands close. God's still God. The economy is fragile, but God isn't. God still wants... This is the time to believe what we really believe. That great is thy faithfulness, sing so well... But we've got to sing it while we open our checkbook. Yeah. 
Great is thy faithfulness, O God, as I write out that check, believing that God is faithful and true, so on. Commendation number four is the commendation of enlargement. I think it's something God has specifically put upon this community, and don't let the enemy shrink you. Not as individuals and not as a community. This light, this lighthouse, the city set on a hill that God has established for you is exactly that. It's to bring light into a dark world, salt and light into a decaying world. And I really believe the Father implores you, applauds you for your enlargement. When people come in here, they need to leave out of friendship, out of worship, out of partnership, out of the Word, that they've been enlarged. And that's precisely what has happened. Turn with me, please, now that I've been nice to you. That's enough now. I'm not going to be nice anymore. It's very cool to be here. I was here many years ago, I don't remember when, and had the privilege of ministering into that school and seeing the smaller community. It's great. Bruce, I appreciate you bringing your second or third week church plant to come and hang with us, wherever you are, sitting at the back. Great meal the other night, bro. Thank you. Appreciate your generosity. Um, You know what I want to do with you this morning? I would love to take you on a little journey. This is the title. It's called God Encounters a Father's Journey. Sounds a nice title, doesn't it? I liked it. But I want to walk you through, and I hope you don't mind me telling you a few personal stories. I've been saved for 30 years now. I came to Christ, well, actually 32, as an 18-year-old college student in Durban, South Africa. I'm 50 years old. I'm a grandfather. And uh, for 32 years, I've journeyed with Jesus and have loved, loved, loved it. Even in the darkest hours when I've ached and pained like you and have wept in the fetal position because I am battered and bruised by the church, it has never decreased my love for Jesus and my love for His bride. I can promise you that. I love the church. and The church has been incredibly unkind on occasion. But never let that twist your heart, please. I've seen generations. The 70s, 1976 is when I came to Christ. I've seen some of those guys who are now bitter and twisted and gnarled up on the inside because someone somewhere hurt them. And then I saw the 80s and the beginning of the apostolic movement, or here in the UK, the house church movement. And I saw people who were powering for Jesus then on gnarly, twisted, freaked out, uh, frown on the forehead, just messed up people. I tell you, we can have this incredible privilege of encountering God and remaining free. The testimony of our lives is freedom in the pain, not bitterness because of the pain. And we've got to choose. We have to choose. And I really want to employ you. I'm 50 years old. I want to be... There's an old man when I was in the Methodist church. My brief history is that I'm Afrikaans, and so we went to the Dutch Reformed Church. My dad had a fallout with a diakon, with a deacon, because the only time they visited our home was to take up the tithes. So my dad had a fallout with him, and so we became Methodists. <laughs> I suspect it wasn't over theology. I suspect it was over the wallet. But there was an old man in the Westville Methodist Church, Pops Bunker we used to call him. And uh, he, he always brought a smile to all of our faces, kind of saying, poor Pops. Because you know what he did? He sang a chorus twice. Now, I know that's shocking and amazing when you come from Methodism, but he would get so pumped up with 
How great thou art. How great thou art. And the organist would be ready to put her hands down on a pop's bunker. We'd get all pumped up again. And how great thou art. And we all smile, you know, poor pops. You know, it's a little embarrassing. He's like that, that uncle that you're a bit nervous about. A little bit eccentric. You don't know what he's going to do next. He may sing it a third time, God forbid. And then sometimes he did. And we'd all like, poor pops. I want to be that eccentric, passionate old-timer who dies in the pulpit with a smile on his face that God is so good, and isn't it exciting that I'm going to go and be with him? But in order for me to dwell there, it requires certain things to happen down here. And uh, I want to just take you through. It's a very simple talk. It's more of a journey than even a a sequential talk. But I want to draw you into the the God encounter quotient. And I hope it does you good. It it does me just remembering what God has done. Let's go to Titus chapter 1, please. How are you doing, everyone? Anyone struggle with my accent? Okay, it's the only one I have, I'm afraid. I tried to be an American, and my kids were dismayed. So I'm afraid I'm a collage of three cultures. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, verse 1, and an apostle of Jesus Christ... For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought us his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Here is an interesting thing because Paul writes of two time concepts. One is the appointed time, sorry, the beginning of time, second, the appointed season. I want to help you understand something. God, in His profound wisdom and in His great sovereignty and providence, stood before time began, looked down the collage of your life, He rolled out the carpet, and He appointed your life in time chapters. Your life and mine has been divided up, conception to baby to toddler to little child, whatever they are, to teenager, whatever the case may be. There are clear and strategic time chapters. God authored, God designed, God intended. Each unit of time has the seasons within it. Because each chapter of time, God wants to download a package of truth. So here we have a chapter. God downloads a truth package. He lets that truth package go through the seasons in your life. Caprice? So God says, Ant, I want you to learn to tithe. So what he does, first week, Ant sitting there with his checkbook and he's sweaty, and he thinks of all the bills he's got to pay, and is this going to work out, and what am I going to say to the missus if she finds out I'm tithing? And he zaps it out. God's grabbed a hold of him, and he writes out that tithe check, puts it in the, in the, the uh, basket here, and God smiles. And the next morning, his boss calls him in and says, I've got a promotion for you. And then the lawyer calls and says, you know that great aunt, remember Aunt Sarah, never heard of her. She left you a piece of property, and this is it. And says, can I testify? And if we're in the south, the white hankies come out, testify, brother. Come on, testify. Can somebody testify for me now? Can somebody testify? And Anne said, I want to testify. I want to testify. 
You see, and it's summer. And everyone is testifying and blessed through their tree, but the seasonal clock is ticking. And soon it begins to drift into the cool winds of autumn. And the fall begins to bring the leaves that fall off the tree. And suddenly I've got more bills and I've got money. And Ant is on his knees. Oh, God, you said. God, you said. And the fall, the autumn turns to winter. And we can't make it work. And we're under financial pressure. And everything goes wrong. And the refrigerator stops working. And the car needs brakes. And the kids have got a school outing. And they need new clothes. And we cry because God is having us press into Him. Because it's in the winter that our theology has become substance. It's not in the summer. And as we guts our way through that, and as we guts our way through the winter, the clock begins to tick, and one day there are buds on the trees, and we walk in and, oh, oh, there's a new fragrance here. And then we know that chapter has come to an end. We put a period point down, a full stop. We turn over the page, and there is a new chapter with a new truth package download with a new seasonal evolution. And there's one more thing I want to add in there. God chooses the place for each time. Acts 17, God knows the times and places where we should live. Isaiah 60, it is the planting of the Lord. It's the planting of the Lord, because the Lord knows at this point in time, this climatology is what is totally suited for this plant to be born, the seed to be born, and to bear fruit. And so when I want to get out of my marriage, it's about as crazy as can be, which I never have, but it's about as crazy as I can be, because this is the place where God has planted me to bear fruit. If I want to leave the church in a huff and storm off somewhere else, it's a problem when you're leading it, but be that as it may. You want to huff off and walk or somewhere else. It's because we haven't got the understanding. God chooses the place. God chooses the time. And God chooses the seasons. It's Him. And so the forest, blooming, magnificently fragranced flower, storms off, leaves the forest, plonks herself down in the desert and wonders why she never blooms because she never was intended to. God chooses the time, God chooses the place, and God chooses the season, and we have nothing to do with it. We can prolong it, but we cannot initiate it. That's God's dealings. You with me? Okay. Turn with me to the book of Galatians, please. Chapter 1. God encounters a father's journey. I want you to know, brothers, verse 11 of chapter 1 says, that the gospel preached is not something man made up. Gospel I preached. I've got so many pen marks here, I struggle to read it. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Now that is either profound arrogance... Or it's the language of a man who's been in the Father's presence. I'll comment in a moment. For you have not heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, 
who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. And I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Was Paul being profoundly arrogant? Or was he trying to communicate in his own journey a most profound point? Here is my suggestion. When you look at the word gospel in the Bible, it appears in the ESV 94 times. You find the gospel is preceded by either a gospel, the gospel, my gospel, our gospel. Here's my proposal. A gospel means that there are other gospels in our perception, like Dr. Phil or Oprah or whoever else may be the case in, in England that I don't know of. In other words, the community out there views Jesus as a possible gospel, a possible good news with Hinduism or whatever the case may be. One of the things that happened in Dubai, um, it was so cool to kind of sit around a room and just listen to each other's stories. And I forgot... Uh, Rob Rupus is my best friend. Uh, we've been friends for 30-some years. And uh, he reminded us, reminded me, because I'd forgotten, how God met with him in an ashram, in a Hindu temple. He was, um, he was from a, 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 an atheist home. His father was an atheist. His mother was agnostic. And he sought to encounter God. And so he was at university at Rhodes and uh, decided to join the Hare Krishna movement. Cut his hair off little ponytail, wore the ash from the Ganges, wore the, Bhagavad, uh, the Ashron robe, um, Saf, whatever robes, read the Bhagavad Gita, used to get up at 3 o'clock every morning to chant. And he was in the mantra one day, Hari Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari Rama Rama. While he was doing that, Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. Isn't God incredibly good? See, up until that point in time, as Rob's quest for spiritual reality took him into Hinduism, the Lord in His kindness appeared to him and said, truth is not found here. A gospel. Now, many of the people that you want to share Jesus with are on this journey. Don't try to go for the slam dunk for the for first time. They probably need to process a gospel in an age of tolerance in a pantheistic age of many gods, a gospel is their point of departure. Honor it. Don't say, you stupid. How on earth can you think? That's crazy. Why do you do that? No, no. A gospel is a legitimate part of their journey. Number two, the gospel. The gospel is when we get to a place of acknowledging that Christ is who He said He is. It doesn't mean He's that to me yet. It does mean that He is who He said He is. Thirdly, my gospel, and that's what Paul is saying here, God revealed it to me. It's not arrogant. He's not trying to impress anyone. He's saying this is deeply rooted and entrenched in me. I'm reading this book called The Mystics. I kind of enjoy reading. Sorry, love. And um, it's fascinating. I was, I was reading early this morning, but probably the greatest martyrdom number in, in history. And I hope I have the story right because it, I just... But during um, one of the emperors, there was a, an uprising up in, in the barbarian community up in Gaul. 
And so um, every time they sent the soldiers up there, the, the Gauls, the barbarians would defeat the Romans. And so what they decided to do is... Asterix, that's right. I wasn't going to mention it, but I just wanted to see in my spirit man if you knew. And um, so what happened was he decided, the emperor did, to send in soldiers from Egypt. So they got a, a however many battalion and they moved them up there. The problem was, the problem was that these Gaulites had come to Christ. This particular battalion of, uh, of Roman soldiers were Christians. They were Coptic Egyptian believers. When they found out that both sides were believers, they refused to fight each other. And so what the emperor decided to do was to decimate them, meaning Desi 10. Every 10th guy would be martyred for his faith. Because they got together and they said, we, we honor you, but we will not kill our brother. And so the emperor, of course, could not back down. And so he ended up killing every 10th one. When that didn't work, he did it again. And that didn't work, he did it again. Until eventually 6,600 soldiers were martyred for their faith in one day. How many of you know every one of them had to have this revelation? When you see the tenth guy, you counting quickly, boy. You one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> you see, it comes to the place where we're able to say, My gospel. And I'm prepared to lay my life down for my gospel. But there is a fourth ingredient, folk, and that is our gospel. Because there is an expression of gospel privilege that only comes through in togetherness. And those who stop at a gospel, the gospel, my gospel, never enjoy the richness because there is faith and grace and impact and influence that comes through our gospel. So I leave that with you. Let's journey a little bit. God encounters. I was thinking the other day, which is what got me onto this. The first time I saw the power of God demonstrated publicly. It was about 1978, 79. There was a young Californian out by a man called Lonnie Frisbee. We were in a warehouse, not as fancy as this. The Invisible Church was our name. We were an inner city ministry. About a thousand people were present. Our leader was a five-point Calvinist, a reformed thinker. And we'd never seen, I'd never heard of anything where God is publicly demonstrated. I was leading worship, I was on the platform. Lonnie had this long hair straight out of the Jesus People movement. Very casual, very laid back. Just kind of walked, chatted. Wasn't a great sermon, I wasn't that impressed, or they intrigued me. And then he stopped and he said, come Holy Spirit. And he said, if any of you want to encounter God, come forward. There were lines of people. Well, a line across the front of the room. Now remember, please go back, if you can, 30 years. We'd never experienced anything. We didn't know anything unless we'd read of Catherine Kuhlman or someone or other. Which I hadn't. I didn't even know there was a Catherine Kuhlman. And Lonnie got up and he just looked across and he said, Would you just raise your hands? And he said, Holy Spirit, would you come upon these people? And the power of God hit these people off their feet. And they plowed into the front rows. How many of you know he caught my attention right at that moment in time? <laughs> because there was no psychology. 
There was no kind of cultural preparedness. Look to see if someone's going to catch me. Woohoo! Woohoo! You know, little cloths come around. You know, little cloths come around. There was none of that. We didn't know any of that stuff. The power of God hit the guys off their feet. When we, when we were in Dubai now, we did a four-day event called Power Encounter. And I then traced my journey from that point until this point, and that's where I want to try and help you. Am I, are we doing all right time-wise, Ant? You all right? What does God encounter mean to you? For some of you, it's your preoccupation. For some of you, you've seen excesses, so you are at best cautious, at worst, anti. Now, what I want to suggest, folk, God encounters are not limited to falling, shaking, or other manifestations. I want us to be enlarged by divine encounters. I want us to be increased by the notion that when God meets with us, some profound divine transaction takes place. Number one, the day you were born, the angels sang. Do you believe that? God, in His wisdom, penned through the gospel authors a picture of Jesus' birth. He came as a man, incarnate, was a man just like us, the epistle authors tell us. So whatever happened to the man just like us is also, therefore, what happened to us. And it startles me how few people believe that God rejoiced the day you were born. Why? Why? One of the minor prophets, I just for a moment can't think, says this, that God was roused from his throne. And the picture I have at the point of birth is God pushing the throne of grace back. And forgive me, but my mind does slip back to the days of robes. And there is my heavenly father regally presented in his kingly robes, in his fatherly robes, and the angels start singing. And as the angels sing, he whispers, forgive me a little bit of theological dramatic license, okay? He turns to Jesus and he says, why are the angels singing? And it says the angels are singing because you were born. And a smile alights upon the Father's face as he rises himself out of his throne and he starts rejoicing over you with singing. And as he sings, and the Bible tells us that he does, so the angels intensify their songs of gratitude because there is a moment of divine creation and the transaction of new life has just been released in a new child. And so John, in his mother's womb, leapt when he encountered Christ in his mother's womb. And what I want to paint for you is this incredible joy that's on the Father's face at the notion that you were conceived and you were born. Even if you were conceived in sin, it never caught God unawares. There is not a person in this room that should live somehow frowning under a low-grade disgrace because your mother and your father were never your dad and your mom. They were never husband and wife. And you come into an orb of holiness and purity and you find yourself head held down as if God is blaming you because your mom and dad were promiscuous. No, sir. No, madam. 
The day you were born, the angels sang. Why do we weep when a child is born? Because there's something that journeys us with heaven at that divine moment, and we know the Father's good pleasure resides over that infant in that hospital room. You see, God encounter is not limited to a certain preacher, a certain church culture, a certain moment. It is a journey of partnership and intimacy with the Most High God. And then that great day when you came to Christ, and I remember as an 18-year-old just lying on my bed at home in Westville, South Africa, and, and I said, Lord Jesus, if you're real, come into my life. I wanted the angels to appear. I wanted Jesus himself to pop in and say, what's up? <laughs> I had long hair. I was cool. I, I did the whole night. But he didn't. But there was a divine transaction moment where I met in the simplicity of a question. If you real, come into my life. It was a divine encounter that transformed me. We want the authentic, do we not? How many of you know that when Paul was on his steed, it probably was a donkey, but let me be dramatic for a moment. Let me have this picture of this robe flying behind him and this black steed and the sweat and all the stuff. And what do you call it? Um, the froth out of his mouth and his stirrup and his kicking. And it's like the three musketeers and the three pauleteers or something. And they like, whoo, and they flying down the road to Damascus and God just slaps him off his steed and he lands on his butt. How many of you know when there is an authentic divine encounter, there is an authentic divine transformation? I'm not interested in a culture of manifestations if it isn't partnered with a culture of transformation. Then we are chasing something that has no long-term value. When my God meets with you and with me, we get up off there and we know, it's like that rugby thing, you know, you got tackled, you know that you've been hit. When God tackles us, folks, we know we've been tackled. There is that great picture of Paul. And he cried, who are you, Lord? What is it you have of me? What is it you want of me? Because it was a divine encounter that was a divine transformation. And I opened the scriptures. Just this, just this. I didn't even know the Bible. And I read this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. A.K.A. before you were born, I put a certain DNA in you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When was this? Before I formed you in the womb. It's an incredible thing, folks. So many of our insecurities and vulnerabilities are driven by the absence of theology. Before time began, God rolled out the carpet of your life. It wasn't a tightrope. It was a spacious place for you to enjoy and to play in. And every now and again, when you get a little close to the fence, He pushes you back. Say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Play back there, because that's where we are at our most fondest and at our most enjoyable. Before I formed you in the womb, God encounter number one. At birth and rebirth, God sings his songs over us. 
And he declares his divine intention to us. Hold on to those moments because they're absolutely essential. Number two. God encounter number two. I am so profoundly grateful, folks, that I encountered a thinking man's faith. You know what's sad for me? I love reading the width of, of, of books, and I, I don't limit myself to people who think like me. What good is that? And I might as well just listen to me. I, I like reading those who don't think like me so that they can challenge and enlarge me. I'm so grateful to God that I was born into a thinking man's faith. For those of you who were around in the 70s, Francis Schaeffer, how then, shall, how, shall we, how then Shall We Live, all that kind of stuff. And I want to say this, that for those who desire, quote-unquote, God encounters, there is a theological dumbing down, frowning upon true theology and doctrine. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Isn't it amazing? When Paul goes on, he says... I have this incredible revelation of Jesus, and then he says, and I studied. I accumulated all this facts and knowledge. And I want to encourage you, I want to implore you to become a thinking man's believer or a thinking woman's believer. I want to implore you to be men and women of theology because theology is absolutely magnificent. What has kept me in some of the dastardly days, 12 and a half years in America? What kept me when I was lying in the fetal position, and the lights off in a corner weeping because I didn't know where else to go? You know what kept me? Not a shaking hand or a quivering voice. This kept me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I'm not a prophet. That never was the emphasis to me. It was the nations. What kept me when Meryl and I were in Delhi X number of years ago in India, and we were the YMCA, and we were on a combined phone before the cell phone days. Yeah, there were days before the cell phone. I know it's amazing for some of you, but it I remember us sitting, sharing this old phone in the YMCA in Delhi, and Nasia, my eldest daughter, had just swum in her first swim meet, and she won. And she asked me before we went, she was about eight years old, she said, Dad, is it okay if I ask your brother to be my dad for the day? And when we finished speaking, and well done, babe, we're so proud of you, and he put the phone back, and Meryl and I fell back on the bed and wept. What kept me then? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Theology, folk, is an incredibly profound God encounter. And to those of you who by gifting, a little more prophetic, by personality, a little more desire for intimate affection with the Most High, and I love that. Please do not forfeit the joy and privilege of substantial theology. David Wells, another book that I have in my bag, says that the two things that concerns him about the American church, and he's a professor at, at uh, Cromwell University, he says is this, doctrine diminishing and church vanishing. The two things that are the cornerstones, the pillars of who we are, are the two things we're giving least attention to. Doctrine and local church. You with me? 
Okay. A great theology of God encounters. Number three. God encounters a father's journey, the dastardly desert. Ah! There is no journey that doesn't go through the desert. Joseph had it. Jesus had it. Moses had it. Paul had it. There is no journey that goes around the desert. We want to do the eight-day version and not the 40-day, 40-year version, but we will go through it. Are you with me? I wish I had time, which I don't have. I'll get back to that. I'll get back to that. I'll get back to that. Learn the desert lessons quickly. And the greatest impact of the desert lessons, folk, is this. God will strip us of everything until all that we have is our theology. You with me? Mary and I have a great relationship. We've been married 28 years. We courted for three before that. 31 years, that's a long time. We love each other deeply. Traveled together 99% of the time. We've had an incredible life together. But even then, in desert times, whether it's hers or mine or ours together, God will ensure that He strips us even of the confidence of this relationship. God will peel off us every relationship, everything we've grown to rely on or worship. And so all that we have left is our theology. Folks, that is a divine encounter, a God encounter of the ultimate kind. When all that we have left is to stand firm on our theology, God is sovereign. He who began a good work in me shall surely bring it to completion. He is the author and the perfecter of my faith. He turns all things together to the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. In the desert, can I say this? We can run from meeting to meeting, conference to conference, and it will not extricate us out of the desert. It was, oh, I feel so dry. Of course you feel dry. You're in the desert. It's dry there. (laughs) So I'm going to run off to a church that has more manifestations. You're going to be dry there. Because it's a God-authored time, season, place. Go through it quickly so that there's water on the other side. Rivers of living water on the other side. Make sense? Moving on quickly, and I'm trying to not to be too long. God encounters and the culture clash. I'm from a conservative Afrikaans family. Our parents, very conservative. They've loosened up a little bit in recent years, which is really cool. But I want to say to those of you who are conservative, let the kingdom clash with your culture. Let it. When I stood up on the stage leading worship, and Lonnie prayed for the first time, and people plowed into seats, my culture was offended. My cultural sensibilities. You don't do church this way. You know, you've got to have the duomini with a vittas and a vittemp and a swartpak. Translated, a black suit, white shirt, white tie. That's how you do church. And you look as grumpy as possible. And all these people dare to be happy and laugh and stuff. I mean, who do they think this is? Unfortunately, exposes my theological fragilities. Because it's the joy of the Lord that's my strength. Not the grumpiness. The joy of the Lord. So why should it surprise me if people suddenly start laughing when the anointing comes? Why? 
We don't go for the manifestations. We go for the joy because it's the joy that is the spring in my step when I wake up in the morning because it comes out of the fact that He is God. He is the transcendent God. He is above everything. He is beyond everything. He's the imminent God. He's the in everything God. And so tomorrow morning when I wake up, I don't have a bubble us from the joy meeting the night before. I don't have a hangover from the joy meeting the night before. The joy remains. And if you do do things like, like this, it's your indaba. Just let the joy come out when your kids are grumpy and the food is burnt and your husband's coming home and he's in a bad mood. That's when it counts. I don't care if you, ooh, ooh, and you I don't care. I want joy in the home when I come home. You with me? That's when it counts. So I went to Rodney Art Brown's meetings for the first time in about 1982. And it shocked me. Skanda. Scandal. There were people who laughed in the meetings. Why would they want to laugh in a meeting when a man's preaching? I suspect God tickled them. That's why they laughed. Because <laughs> we take ourselves too seriously. Don't we? He says, unless you come like a child. So my two-year-old grandson comes and says, tickle me, Papa. So what do I say to him? Come on, boy, you've got to grow up now. You've got to be a big boy now. No more tickling. Now, of course, I tickle him, and then he says, me tickle. And then he comes and he goes like this. And what do I do? <laughs> That's not ticklish. It's not even funny. But I love the boy. And so why is it so peculiar if God the Holy Spirit walks around, arrives at your chair, and he says, my goodness, you're taking yourself far too seriously. And he plucks one of those little white feathers out of nowhere, and he starts tickling you, and you say, ha, 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 Because God's having fun. Because we take him and ourselves far too seriously. It's okay for God to do that. But the emphasis isn't the evidence. The emphasis is the transformation. That's where the emphasis lies. You with me? It's not, it's not, not rocket science. Because God enjoys it. God enjoys it. We can never adopt the older brother posture. Mm. I saw the way he looked at his wife during that meeting. He was, now, now look at him in the meeting. and he's, uh, uh. God's doing business with people. You are not the judge. God is the judge. People need God encounters, folks. We all need God encounters. Honestly, as a husband, one of the things that delights me the most is when I see Meryl encounter God that way. She's shy. If Meryl had a way, she'd be sitting at the back. She wouldn't be in the front. It's not her propensity. My family are that way. We would sit on the stage if we could. <laughs> am I right? Vashti, am I right? Vashti knows my sister. We'd be up there. We wouldn't be down here. This is far too boring for us. We want to be up there. That's where we want to be. Meryl wants to be at the back. But one of the things I absolutely love, to her embarrassment sometimes, is when God ministers to her. Because I know it's real, and I know it's authentic. I know when her hand shakes and she starts quivering, the power of God is all over her, because she cannot, unless she chooses to step out of the anointing, which we can, I just, I just absolutely love it when God is over Meryl that way. And I want to say that, folks, because 1995, when the Toronto blessing hit, I'm going to try and bring it down to earth in a moment, Anne. When in the 1995, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, what is this stuff? What, what is this? Just help me. I, I never want to get in your way. I'm culturally offended by what's happening. 
But I never want to get in the way. And I'd run the comrades just before that, a few years before that, and I felt God say, Chris, it's like that mist tunnel. And I knew instantly. The mist tunnel isn't Peter Maritzburg. It's just the mist tunnel. It's when your limbs are hurting and your muscles are crying and they're spasming and they, they, they don't want to go any further and you are fighting. Your body is fighting your mind and your mind is fighting your emotions and your spirit is soaring. It's at that point in time you need the mist tunnel to get in and to be refreshed. But you don't stay there for nine hours, you know. <laughs> you get out the mist tunnel and you get a jolly Peter Maritzburg. There are no badges for the mist tunnel. There's no, you stayed the longest time in the mist tunnel. Here is the gold badge, you know. There are no mist tunnel badges. Because it's the refreshment required to get to the destination, this all. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Enjoy God the Holy Spirit when He comes. Acts 2 does tell us it looked like they were drunk. And I remember in 1995, I was leading a meeting. It was a wild meeting. Well, actually, I was there. To say I was leading it would probably be dishonest because I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> and Dave Phillips, who, was, who brought a team from his church to, to minister at our church, called an accountant up. Now, forgive me for being stereotypical, but this guy had khaki pants and a checked shirt from Woolworths. Now, you know what I'm trying to say to South Africans. So he gets up, this guy, and he starts in this doer accountant, boring, one plus one equals two way, he gets up and he starts telling about what God has done for him over this time. And while he's talking, he freezes. Now the horrible thing about that is that if you lead the meeting, you know what everyone does? They look at you. And what I do is, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because what do I know what to do? I have no clue. What am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to defreeze him? <laughs> Walk around with a little Bunsen burner? Yeah. Oop! Oop! <laughs> I don't remember. Do you remember how long he was like that for? He just froze. And when he defroze, he, he didn't finish his sentence. He kind of looked and he was totally drunk. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that I did encounter people who got drunk at university. I, I, I met them. I, I, saw, I saw them happen. And he climbed off the stage, which probably wasn't as high as this, and he was totally blotter. I mean, he was totally, totally drunk. I remember having a, a, a barbecue on the beach with a group of rugby mates during the army days, and uh, one of my friends did acquire inebriation. And um, he played rock for us. He was about six foot four, big guy. And, and, and he got up from the fire... And he stormed off, but like this. I said, CB, where are you going? He said, I'm going to kill female jaws. I never quite made any sense of it, because he wasn't getting any closer to the water. You know, it was like, the same look was on that man's face. He climbed off there, and he walked sideways right to where I was. And I felt the Spirit of God say, do you see it's authentic? Because there's no way... He could have acted out what just took place. Now we sit with our cerebral minds and say, God, why do you do that? I don't have an answer. But because I don't have an answer, doesn't make it illegitimate. 
God can do what God wants to do. And God knows what each one of us needs in the encounter process. Whether it's the angels sing, whether it's the substance of theology, whether it's the depravity of the desert, or whether it is those moments almost of irrational encounter, it doesn't matter. As long as we focus in on this, that God takes us from one degree of glory to the next, to the next, and to the next. Let's go back to Galatians and I'm done. Verse 15, I think it is. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me so that I might. How long have I been preaching, huh? An hour. I wanted to preach less. But then I want to preach less every Sunday, and I don't do it, so. But when God, Paul gives us an eternal reminder that that which is valuable is God initiated, but when God. And we have to bow a humble knee and let God be God. Are you with me? We do not script how God must do what He does, and we certainly cannot play judge when He does. We have to allow God, and it sounds almost blasphemous, the freedom to be God amongst us. Folk, there are challenging days ahead, and we need, we need every evidence of God encounters. Not some, not our favorites, not the one we prefer. We've got to open our hands up and say, God, please come. We are hungry for your presence any way you want. Number two, not just when God, number two, who set me apart from birth. I want to drive that home without further comment. Who set me apart from birth. When you were born, God sang over you. And maybe today that's the only part of the message you're going to remember. That God sang over you. Number three. And he called me by his grace. Now folks, I don't know what picture you have. But when I came to Christ... God gave me a picture which goes something like this. The picture was, post-salvation, I have to abbreviate it for time, but post-salvation was me walking up onto a ramp, up some stairs, and at the top of the stairs I looked up, and there were angels either side of this passageway. The passageway was loaded with lights. The Shekinah presence of God was prolific. The sounds, the heavenly sounds of the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels and the witnesses and the martyrs of days gone by were singing in choral harmony supreme to the ear. And as I stood up onto that passageway, God got up from his throne. Now this is the thing that cemented and sealed it for me. I've never backslidden in the sense that I've never wanted to walk away from God. I've stumbled in sin, of course, but I've never wanted to walk away from God because that moment God got up from the throne, this is the picture, and he silenced the angels. I have no theological basis for this, so you can throw it out if you want. And then bellowing from the throne of grace, God called me by name. Heaven has heard, Cross! And this deep baritone beckoned me, and I ran to him and he to me, and he picked me up and he held me. 
Heaven has heard your name. Because that was not unique to me. It was a guarantee to all that He called us by name. He called you to Jesus. He called you and the angels heard and the martyrs heard. He is not embarrassed by your conversion. He is not embarrassed by your performance. He beckoned you by name. And that is a sealed, theologically guaranteed God encounter that if you hold to, will keep your feet in step, focused for the rest of your days. He called you by name. Do you know that? He's not embarrassed. He's not whispering out the side of your mouth when you came up. Oh, he must have been really impressed when Billy Graham got saved. When I got saved, I was a little embarrassed, you know. No, sir. No, madam. He called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son. Folk, we live under friendly skies. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Not because of anything I've done, was doing, or will do. It's because he is kind, he is good, he is long-suffering, he is gracious. We live under friendly skies. It pleased him to reveal his son to me. Please, stop living under low-grade guilt. Where there's guilt, repent, and let's get on with it. So that I might, dot, dot, dot. So that I might. How would you finish that sentence? For me it is so that I might preach His Word. From the time I was eight years old and stood on a bed in my parents' house, looking in a mirror, I'm not too sure how all this works, but my mother walked in and she said, Chris, what are you doing? She said, I said, Mom, I'm preaching. And she said, what are you gonna, who are you going to preach? She said, I said, I don't know, but I'm going to be a missionary one day. See, God put that in me before time began so that I might preach His Word. And I finished my university degree and I spent two years in the army and I taught for a year and then we planted Glenridge. And the point I'm making is that my robes changed many times but the essence of purpose never did. The God encounter that gives me purpose is the knowledge that I can finish the sentence so that I might. And the robe can change. I wasn't any less of God's boy when I had a military uniform on. And then I became a school teacher and it was different again. The garments changed, but the destiny never did. All of the God encounters, and I've mentioned a handful are all there to enhance the destiny that God has for me. Everyone. But if I don't understand the destiny, I begin to run from experience to experience. Let's pray together.